0: Revelation, like I told it's kind of like Romans when we did our Romans series. I told everybody, if we stick through Romans, you have a whole different outlook on your Christianity and your walk with God. Same thing with Revelation. It's a, it's a tough book. A lot of people don't like to go through it, but we're gonna, we've are gonna we been going through it. But before we get into, we're in chapter 11, but before we get into that tonight, hey Chris, um, you have a paper, everybody has one of these, and this is basically a kind of a visualization for you of where we're going different places in Revelation. But one thing I'm going to talk about tonight before I get to chapter 11 is we've already covered something that I want on here. And you guys are more than welcome to write on your own. That's why I gave it to you. Put your own notes on there. But how many remember when I talked about the Jewish wedding ritual and how that actually showed everything of Christ, all the way up to the rapture and everything? I want to show you again using this. Okay. So the Jewish wedding. It was commanded in the Old Testament of how they would do their weddings. So what would happen is, the father would command the son, the Jewish son, to go out and find his bride. So I want you to picture that being right about here on your timeline. That would be about the time that Christ came to earth. So, the Jewish tradition was, the son would go out, he would find his bride. Then he would find his bride, and he would come back to his father. And he would tell his father, I found the one I want to be my bride. Now, in those days a price had to be paid for the bride. They would have to give something. So, what that was showing us was, a price, Christ had to pay a price for his bride. Now, further on in the Jewish wedding, once the price was paid, okay, the father would tell the son, I will build a house for you, for you and your wife, but I cannot tell you when this house will be done, I will call for you when the house is done. So, that puts us in the grace period on the timeline. So as the father is building the house in the Jewish tradition, then he would call up his son and he'd say, Son, your house is complete. Go get your bride. That is where the rapture comes in. Christ returns to take his bride. Now, interestingly... When they get to Unlike our weddings, when we get married... As soon as we're married, we run out in front of everybody... Like, woo look, we're husband and wife, eh. Not in the Jewish tradition. What they did was, as soon as they were married... The bride and groom were hidden away... In the, in the groom's chamber, in his room... They were hidden away for seven days. That gives you... The seven-year period of the tribulation. Now, after the seven days the bride and groom would leave the chambers and come out and be presented to the to the public as man and wife that is here so i just want it's amazing that thousands of years before christ ever came to the earth to be sacrificed god gave them instructions on how to get married and every aspect of the wedding instruction was the picture that you see in front of you. Now we're going to go a little deeper than that tonight. Remember when we watched that movie and it talked about the seven feasts, the Jewish feasts? Um, some of you were here to watch it. We watched the coming conversions. Uh, some of you missed it. But it was, a, it was just showing us prophecy and how it comes together. But one thing I want to talk about is the seven feasts. How many have heard of the feasts, the Jewish feasts in the Old Testament? Okay, well there's seven of them particularly. There's the four fall feasts and the three spring feasts. If you look at your sheet, you notice I marked them. Four fall feasts, three spring feasts. Not only did the Jewish wedding give them a picture this timeline, the feasts that were given to them by God also lays out this timeline. So we'll go over a few of them. The first feast, we're going to talk about everybody should know what it is, the Feast of Passover. Everybody remember that? What Passover was? Um, that's where, you remember, the Israelites, they were told to kill a bullock, and they would paint the door frames with blood. Now, if you look at the descriptions that's given to them in painting the door frames, it said they, were, they had to put it up the side and on the lintel when they painted it in the instructions. So if I'm going this way and this way, what am I creating? A cross. So when they painted this, it gave the image of a cross because they were to paint bottom to top, side to side when they painted the door frames. That gives them the image of the cross. So what that one feast was showing them, because what happened in that feast? What, why, why did they have to do that? During Passover. So they wouldn't die when the angel of death came, right? He would pass over any door that was covered with blood. Okay, so you've got the imagery of the cross on a door, and the angel of death is passing over it, which means it's passing over sin. So that first feast that they celebrated was showing them this: the sacrifice of Christ who would pay for the sins of the world. Then the second feast that's in this is called the feast of unleavened bread. Um, how many know what that is? Oh, some people do. All right, this it's a seven-day feast and. It, it's, it starts on the day following Passover. So when they had Passover, the day following that, they would, they would start the feast of the unleavened bread. Now, it represented when they left Egypt, they had to leave in a hurry, and they couldn't take anything with them. So it, that's what it was representing, that they, they had to make bread without using yeast in it because they had to leave in a hurry. But it also represents something. What does yeast do when you put it into a mix? It rises. It also permeates through everything. So actually, yeast in this this example represented sin. Because if sin enters into the chambers or the the church, if it gets into the church and it's allowed to stay there, just like yeast, it'll permeate and go all through the church. So what what this feast was showing them was that When Jesus comes to earth, here, he will live a sinless life because he'll have no beast in his life. So that was the image given to him there. The next feast that they were given is called the Feast of First Fruits. Um, We probably know what that one is. It's a Jewish feast. They they thank and honor God. And this is usually a harvest feast that happens. Um, The priest would sacrifice... Passover lambs, I'm going to give you the dates, on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, okay? That's in your, that should be, I'll give you notes on this so you guys have it. But, and the first day of Passover was the 15th of Nisan. So, what I want you to see, the first fruits would happen before the Passover They were commanded on these days, which will come into play later, we'll talk about it later. But what's important about this is the Feast of First Fruits was celebrated on the third day, the 16th of Nisan, think about it, celebrated on the 16th of the psalm, on the third day. What happened on the third day after Passover, or after the sacrifice of Christ? He rose from the dead, right? And when he rose from the dead, what was he able to present to God? First fruits. He was the first fruit of the... Paul even said, he is the first fruit of the, of the dead. Okay? So he was the first fruit. So that... All the way back in scripture with that feast, God was showing them again. He's giving them this timeline. He's showing them how everything works. The fourth one, the feast of Pentecost. Probably don't have to describe that one. We all pretty much know about that. But in their time, this is the second of the three harvest feasts. And it was, it, what's Pentecost mean? Anybody know? It means 50 days. 50 days. Okay? So, I, so they were, uh, Traditionally, people were expected to bring in like their first harvest into the Pentecost feast. Uh, But they were also supposed to bring in, along with their first harvest, they had to bring two loaves of unleavened bread for for the feast of Pentecost. Now, I don't know, one day I've got some friends who will come in and they're going to lay this stuff out so you can actually see how they do the feast. But it's interesting that they brought in two loaves of unleavened bread. God doesn't do anything by accident. This was another example. The, this was the Feast of Pentecost was showing them the arrival of the church, the church age. But the two unleavened bread, the two loaves of unleavened bread, were showing them that the church would be made of Gentile and of Jews. So during that time he was showing them, my church will be created, and in that church will be both Jew and Gentile. Okay? There's your fourth feast. The fifth one, and we talked about this one a little bit, the Feast of Trumpets. A very unique feast. It is a, it's actually in Leviticus here, we'll read about it, but the Feast of Trumpets was done to celebrate the new moon, as we call it, okay? But interestingly enough about that new moon is they knew a time frame when the new moon would come. Even today, if you look at our calendars, and it always says on the calendar, right, new moon. But if you go out on that day, do you know when that new moon's going to appear? We don't. So what they would do for this feast is people, two witnesses had to be, they would stand in the fields. And the two witnesses would stand out in the fields in Jewish time, and they would keep watching and watching and watching because they didn't know when it would arrive. And as soon as the new crest of the moon appeared, that sliver, they would run in and announce that the new moon had arrived. They would blow their trumpets to announce the Feast of Trumpets. Why is that important? That is directly referring to the rapture. When Christ said in Scripture that no man knows the hour, he was referring directly to the Feast of Trumpets. In the original language, they understood when he said this that he was referring directly to the the Feast of Trumpets. What he was saying to them was you must keep watching because you know when it can happen. We just don't know at what time it happens. So there's another feast point. We go farther. The sixth feast they were told is the Feast of Atonement, the Day of Atonement. Everybody knows what that is, right? Uh, Repentance to God. The priests would atone everything. This is the time when Jews would uh, in their hearts and everything They would would give animals to the high priest, and the high priest would sacrifice the animals. And it was an annual payment. It had to be done every year. And it was annual. Well, what the Day of Atonement was showing them, hiding in plain sight, was the promise that the sins would be permanently atoned for, and that everything would be made right when our high priest returns. Who's our high priest? That's talking about here on the timeline. And then there's one more feast after that. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles follows the Day of Atonement feast. And Tabernacles was to represent when they were in the wilderness for 40 years and they didn't have houses. They lived in temporary homes. Kind of sounds familiar to us, right? We were temporarily here. This is not our home, right? So they would live in these temporary homes and they would, it would recognize the 40 years. Well, well, The feast gave them the idea and showed them the promise that God would return for his people. Because when they were in the wilderness for 40 years, what did they face during that time? Think of everything they went through. Separation, death, sickness, right? All of these different things. What this was showing them is that the priest, the high priest Jesus Christ will return for his people, and when he does return for his people, all of that will be gone. So, we're told in Scripture, when Christ returns, when he returns for his bride, and we are with Christ, what does it say? All of our tears, all of our pain, everything will be wiped away, right? This feast was showing them, again, what happens after the high priest returns, the millennial period. It was showing them the millennial period. And we'll go through each of these very deeply, but I wanted you to see that on the timeline. Because everything in the Old Testament, we like to read it a lot, but everything in the Old Testament is given for instruction. Remember Paul saying that in Romans? It's to remind us of things. And the Pharisees were blind to this, that's why I do the timeline, because we can even read Revelation and completely miss this. One other thing before we get into it. How many know there are seven raptures in Scripture? So, if the Old Testament, if the Bible's an example of everything to us, right? Of what's going to happen. There are seven different examples of rapture in the scripture. This gives us the proof that the church will be raptured. Because I know there's a, there's a lot of different teachings we've talked about. It. Some believe we'll be raptured before tribulation. Some believe we'll wait till mid-trib and be raptured. And some believe we're not going to be raptured. Christ and the rapture will happen at the same time. Biblical That the church will not be here The biggest evidence of course is the Antichrist who cannot operate on This earth unless the Holy Spirit is removed from the earth Okay but let's talk about these There's seven of them. The first one's Enoch. How many know about him? What happened to Enoch? Enoch was what? He was just walking along with God One day and then what happened? Just gone right? Okay that's a rapture example Moses Moses this is going to blow your mind because a lot of people think Moses has died and buried. Everybody knows where he's buried, right? Well, everybody in Scripture knows where he's buried, right? The Jewish people actually buried him, didn't they? Good. No. Moses was buried in the valley in the land of Moab, over against Bethhor. But no man knoweth of his grave unto this day. And, if, and now here's what's different. If you read the rest of that scripture when it talks about burying Moses, no man witnessed it. As it. To this day no man knows where he's at. To this day no man knows where his bones rested. Because in that scripture there's some key words that says, when he went to the mountain and God showed him everything that was going to be given to the next generations, it says, and he buried him. Who's he? God. God. Moses was another picture of the rapture. Because he never was not physically buried. Nobody witnessed him buried. Nobody ever knows where his grave is in scripture. And there's no bones to account for. Third example, Elijah. I mean, I don't have to go over that one too deep, right? We know about what happened with him. You know, right off in a chariot of fire. There's some more to that. We'll talk later. But that's another example of a rapture. Will anybody, will anybody agree that Jesus was an example of a rapture? Okay. but well, was he not taken up? Okay. This one's going to blow your mind. Philip in the New Testament. What happened to Philip in the New Testament? Anybody know? Did he? Now I'm not talking about his death, but did he get like taken a few places? Yes. Didn't he? Yes. Didn't get taken to heaven? But he was physically transformed from one place to another. Correct. That's a good way to put it. But he was an example, and here's why that's important. He was an example that God is able to take you right now and literally, in your form, remove you. That's another example of a rapture. The two witnesses we're going to talk about tonight in the book of Revelation, they are an example of a rapture. We're also going to learn that the two witnesses... Who they are by scripture. And the last one of the seven is Isaiah. Isaiah is an example of a rapture. Does anybody remember reading Isaiah chapter 6, one of my favorite chapters? Throne room, right? When Isaiah is, what does it say? He was translated or moved to the heavens. He didn't die, he wasn't dead. It wasn't a dream, it wasn't a vision. It clearly describes he was actually there. So this is another example of God being able to, this is something we need to grasp our minds on, that God has the power and is able to, at any given moment, to grab you and take you and put you where he needs you, even if it's beyond a physical border. So all these examples of the rapture are not there on accident. And another thing, there's seven of them. What's the number seven? Completion. Completion. Perfect, right? So, those two things that we're talking about, we have the marriage Of the Jewish people. Which I'll put on here next week. And I'll be talking about it. The Jewish wedding. Is an example of that entire timeline. The feasts. Are an example of this entire timeline. The seven rapture points. Are an example of the rapture. And then we'll also be getting into Daniel. Which is Daniel's 70th week. Which is the tribulation. But tonight. After all of that. Let's look at chapter 11. And it starts out this way. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. Chapter 11 on your sheet is here. We're about right in here. This is where chapter 11 is taking place. But the court which is without the temple leap out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread under foot forty and two months. What's important about chapter eleven is it explains now the announcement of God's delay in His suspension of His wrath. Okay, it's basically going to show us that this delay that He put in, that God has delayed the wrath, was neither unexpected or not planned. That this was planned. Okay, in fact. Chapter 10 is the one we had last week is critical chronological marker. Chapter 11 will explain why John must do what the end of chapter 10 said. What the end of chapter 10 tell John to do? Remember last week. It said, go and prophesy to every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every people is what he was told at the end of chapter 10. This chapter explains why John must do that. So it also explains why we must be doing this. A measuring rod for anybody that wants to read in your notes. It's a reference to Ezekiel chapter 40 verses 3. Basically John is given an instrument for measuring. Okay? Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Another interesting note is John is now clearly back on earth at this point. Because the angel of chapter 10, remember, descended from heaven to earth and John was on earth. So clearly John is now on earth. He's not seeing something in heaven. He's seeing something on earth right now. The temple of God is a clear reference to the earthly tabernacle of God. Which is going to be, when He returns. this will be the earthly tabernacle. Um, the temple in this verse is a de- of 1119 has a designation which is an heaven, which we'll be getting to soon. In chapter 11, verse 19, it talks about a different temple, but that one's in heaven. The temple, what did the temple house, anybody know? When they built their temple, what did it house? The ark. The ark, the holy of holies, right? That was, it also had, if you guys have studied it, thought I should bring a picture of it, but the temple was quite intricate in its design. In the middle of the temple, the dead middle, was the holy of holies and there was only one person allowed to go in there and that was the high priest And even he was afraid to go in there because he would tie bells and strings to his feet in case he dropped dead when he went in there, so he pulled back out. But then on the outside of that, you had some other things. But on the outside ring, you had the courts. And this is what we're talking about here. You had the Holy of Holies and you had the courts. So, since the altar is located in a holy place, which is the Holy of Holies, the altar that's mentioned here can't be that altar. Because, because of where it's described, this has to be the altar of burnt offerings. And I, I really should have put a picture up next week. I will. I'll give you a picture of the temple. But it's located. The altar of burnt offerings is located at the. Um, it's located at the court of the priests, the courtroom of the priests, where all the priests would be. The Hebrew word burnt offering it means in Hebrew actually to ascend. Burnt offering means to ascend. In Hebrew. Um, that just literally means to go up in smoke. If you wanted to put it in our terms. So the smoke from the sacrifice, so, so the smoke from the sacrifice was sent to God. And the Scripture says what? It's a, it's a soothing aroma to the Lord, right? Okay. So technically, any offering that was burnt over the altar was a burnt offering. If you want to get technical. Anything that was burnt on that altar was considered a burnt offering. But more specifically, a burnt offering was a complete destruction of the animal. Unlike the sacrifice offering, which didn't completely destroy the animal, the burnt offering would completely destroy the animal, except for the hide. We'll talk about that later. What this was for was it was they did this offering to renew the relationship between them and God. Okay. There was many sacrifices in the Old Testament many reasons, but basically, without going too deep, the burnt offering was just so me. I could renew my relationship. Kind of like today when we feel sin or we're living in sin, what do we do? We repent, right? To, to kind of renew that relationship. Not that we lost our salvation, but we lost that ability to have a relationship because of sin gets in the way. So this was an example of that, and you'll see why we're talking about it. Um, the ultimate fulfillment of this burnt offering was here in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. When Jesus was sacrificed, would you consider his body to have been completely destroyed at that point? I would consider it to be completely destroyed. Other than some things, but it was it was the most gruesome, violent, pain, painful, I mean, I can't even put into words what Roman crucifixion was like. And they only, the greatest thing about it was they only did crucifixion to the worst of the worst. So to visualize crucifixion, it is, the best way to put it is, it's a complete destruction of your body. Because your bones would be hanging out, flesh would be torn from the skin. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a violent act. This was an example this burnt offering was showing them that Christ would come and he would make this atonement that is permanent. Why do you think after Christ was, why do you think there was no more commands to do any feasts? Except for the Jews. They wanted to keep doing them, right? Well, we know why because that wasn't their Savior. They didn't believe Jesus was the Savior. So, what he's describing here when he says, and them that worship therein. That would be those who worship in the area would be the priests what he's talking about. That area or the the court. The court of the priests. And John was told to measure them, but but what it meant was John would not measure them in a meaning of measuring like this way, like feet, if I'm measuring linear feet. That's not what he was meaning by measuring them. What it meant was, with the rod was, that he was going to count them as a measurement. So like if I was measuring something and I wanted to know how many people were in here, I couldn't use a measuring stick to figure that out. But I could measure how many people are here by what? By counting. So the instruction he was given was basically to, not to measure linear, but to measure as a count of the total people that were there. But the important thing it says is, but the court that is without the temple, leave it out. Now we have already decided that that court is the court of the Gentiles. So he's telling him to leave it out. This is the outside of the temple. If you were looking at the temple, there would be one outside court that would go all the way around it. This is literally outside. It didn't even have walls on it. It was outside with a roof over it. That's where the Gentiles were allowed to come worship. They couldn't even enter into the regular temple. That's where they were. So this is it, here meaning what it means in the original language here is so it's mind blowing. What he was told was don't count the outer court and in the original language it says because they follow a God of their own making. So what he was telling them was it had nothing to do with Jew or Gentile on this outer court. Because think about it, back in those days the ones who worshipped on the outer court well, remember there's no church yet when the temple is built. Let's back ourselves up. Christ hadn't been sacrificed yet when the, when the temple was there. And they would worship in the temple. So, how could a Gentile who the Jews could not, they couldn't serve the Jewish God, they weren't allowed to, so how could they be worshiping the real God if they didn't even know who he was? So, they were coming to the outer temple to worship, but they didn't know who they were worshiping. So, they were worshiping something they had created of their own mind. So, what, what this is referring to is measure those who were inside, who were my true followers. But don't measure the outside court, because those are the ones who follow a God of their own making. Because he says, for it is given unto the Gentiles. Now, in the next verse, in the holy city shall they tread under their feet. The original language here in Revelation is, when it says tread under their feet, it actually translates to mistreat or abuse. The holy city is clearly is clearly what do you think it is? Everybody knows what the holy city is, right? Jerusalem. Absolutely, this is clearly Jerusalem. So, those who follow a false god of their own making, what it's saying is, will dishonor God and abuse the city. Now, we just read a few chapters back in Revelation. About some things that are going to come down into Jerusalem that are going to attempt to. Anybody ever heard of once they bring in the desolation into the temple? We're going to get into that. That's what it's referring to here. So, those who follow a false God of their own making will dishonor God and worship and abuse the city. How long are they going to do it? 40 and two months. How long is 40 and two months? Ooh, three and a half years. Does it not say in scripture that the first three and a half years of tribulation will be what? Peace, Peace, right? The Antichrist is going to make, everybody's going to say we're living, he's going to make a peace treaty, everything's going to be hunky-dory, it's going to be rainbows and butterflies, we're going to be eating lollipops and ice cream. The first three and a half years. What does it say in scripture is going to happen right here when the Antichrist pulls that peace treaty? It's going to get pretty ugly, right? Pretty nasty. Pretty nasty. Forty and two months will they worship a false god and will they destroy and desolate the city. That's what it's talking about. After the midpoint. This is three and a half years and it's right in line, which we're going to look at next week, it is directly in line with Daniel's 70th week prophecy. Directly in line with it. That there's no deviation. There. Why is it placed here? The reason is that while the Gentile dispensation of abuse of the people of God runs its course, God has at the same time been taking a people for his name from the Gentiles. So while the non- let's, let's not use Gentiles. Let's use world. Because it makes more sense to us to use the word world. When he refers to Gentiles in here, he's not referring to a Gentile believer. He's referring to those who do not serve Christ. That will say the world. So, What it says is when the world is going around and they're trying to destroy the temples and they're trying to destroy Jerusalem, at the same time, God is also taking people from the world for his people at exactly the same time. That's important. So the mystery of God, God's special work in Jesus to bring Gentiles to glory, ends at the same time. That the Gentile time ends. What did Paul, didn't Paul say something about that? We talked about that. What did Paul say when he says something about when the time of what is full? He said, when the, time of, when the time of the Gentiles is full, which means when the time of when I have taken all from the world who will now be mine, that's when things will come. But what we're talking about, why I want you look at this, is they run concurrently. Even though we're in the tribulation period and we're right here, and now when we get to the next few chapters, we're going to see that pretty much they, these people that are left do not have any desire to be with God. But there is a time that is running it looks all evil. But in this time frame, God is still, still, he's still delaying. He's not, he's not sending his wrath. After that point, all peace is gone, and it looks, te- it looks like there's no end. God still does not send the rat yet. He doesn't blow the seventh trumpet. He's still delaying. and you have to ask yourself, why is he delaying? Because there's still those left who will turn to him. Remember, God doesn't want, know, he doesn't want robots, Right? We weren't born and he said, you'll serve me and I made you to do that and that's what's going to happen and I programmed you up and there's nothing you can do about it. No, we have free will. But God also knows the end. So he knows there are still people left. So when it looks like to us that everything is pure evil, and this applies to today for us, when we look at things and we're like, why is everything so evil? And why isn't God coming back? Why is he not returned yet? There's your answer. Because there are still those who have yet to come to him. So that's why it's showing us. Now, 11.3. Let's get into the witnesses. This is what I want to talk about.
1: And I will give
0: power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. And I will give here... I want to highlight this. And I will give here, in the original language, this is extremely abrupt language. Not like, I'm going to give you a candy bar. That's not the kind of language being used here. The power is, it's an authoritative statement. It means that I will do this. So it's it's an on-purpose statement. My two witnesses, this identifies who's going to receive that power from God. So I ask everyone, who are these two people? We have everybody's got opinions, right? Who, who do you think, who's got opinions? Who do you think these are? Elijah and Moses. Okay, so Elijah and Moses, which is the most popular, right? What? Could it be anybody else? Could it be. Who else was raptured? Could it be Enoch? Could be, right? So what we gotta do is we have to kind of look. Scripture doesn't tell us, really. So it's one of those things where, honestly, it doesn't matter. It doesn't tell us, so we don't really need to know. But I want to break it down, and I want to give you an idea, because he said we can know. If we, if we know the seasons and we know what's going on. So he says here, I want to read from Malachi. Malachi 4.5, and you should know this verse. Most of you will know this verse, or you've heard this verse, let me say that. Behold... I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers. lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Yes, this is a prophecy of John the Baptist. Absolutely is used as a prophecy of John the Baptist. But remember in prophecy, for those who weren't here, prophecy is always given in two peaks. If I was to look at a mountain, just to refresh people around here, if I'm standing here and there's two mountains in front of me, and they're exactly the same height, right? If I'm looking at them, what do I see? One mountain. I can't see the valley in between the two mountains because I'm standing here. I want you to picture prophecy that way. Most of the time when prophecy was given, the prophet could see the peak, but he couldn't see the valley. Hence the reason they didn't understand the separation between Christ's sacrifice and Christ's return because they could only see the peaks. Why I say that is because not only is this a prophecy of John the Baptist but this is also a prophecy of Elijah coming back to earth. This identifies the second witness I mean the first witness because it clearly says and here's why the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's very specific language. Very specific language. Matter of fact, in Scripture, the tribulation period is giving a lot of names. The time of Jacob's trouble. Okay? Referring to Israel. But the great and terrible day of the Lord happens down here. Okay? What's the great and terrible day of the Lord? That's when God pours out His wrath. That's not the tribulation period. The great and terrible day of the Lord is when God blows that seven trumpet and it's over. So, Scripture tells us, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Why would Scripture tell us that if he wasn't going to do that? Do you think it's just saying, I'm going to send you somebody like Elijah. Maybe he's going to look like me. Well, people have said that. Well, let's keep going in Scripture because it gives a lot of information about these people. It says 1,203 score days. That's 1,260 days. This number finds completion in the book of Daniel. Daniel 7, chapter 26. This is also the same time frame during which the holy city, God's people, will experience the worst abuse dishonor the Gentile or non-believers will ever see. So what it's telling us is, they're going to come, and they're going to they're testify and preach for 1,260 days. Anybody got math in their head? How long is that? How long? Three and, a half. three and a half years, right? So, at the midpoint of tribulation, he's going to send the two witnesses. Because he couldn't send them any later, because then 1,260 days will go beyond the return of Christ. And they don't need to be testifying then, do they? Okay, so at the worst point in time, he's sending these two prophets. Now, look what it says. It talks about clothed in sackcloth. We know from Old Testament, why would I do that? Sorrow. Sorrow, right? So, this is describing, it's a clue. This is a clue to what they are going to be saying. What it is is sackcloth in the Old Testament it was made of uh, animal, usually from goats or camels. They made It was animal hair. It's not something pretty we would wear. It's not like the fur coats we wear today. But it indicates sackcloth was a meaning of sorrow, of mourning. When they wore their sackcloth they were usually mourning something really deeply. First Kings also indicates that sackcloth indicates humility. The face of authority. So, in kings, they wore it at times to humble themselves before the Lord. So, there's two things that would happen. John shows that wearing sackcloth indicates a desire for forgiveness, repentance. In other words, desire for repentance. So, this tells us what their message will be. Their message will be one of forgiveness through repentance. And submitting to the authority of God. However, their ministry is going to have another part. It's going to be a ministry of mourning. Why? Why are they mourning? You know. They're here to tell the world. To repent. To find forgiveness. And to come to God. But they're going to be doing it while they're mourning. Because they know it's about to come. They know what is next which is that seventh trumpet. they are mourning those who will not come to Christ because of what is going to happen. Remember I said that's how we should be when we're out there and people and we we minister to people, we talk about Christ to and it, even though maybe they don't come to God it should it should break our hearts because we know the outcome of that. And everybody's going to try to so say they're their ministry is going to be mourning because God's wrath is about to be poured out. We're at, we're at the end game here in this chapter. It's at the end game. If you were to call this a football game, this is the fourth quarter and there's like 10 seconds to go and the score is tied. It's it. It's the end. They're, they know once we are done, it's done. How would, like to have, how would you like to have that call? How would you like to be that person? God says, you know what? You know what? I'm sending you back to earth, and when you go there, once you leave, I'm pouring my wrath out, so you better save as many as you can. Maybe that's what you should do to us, right? Like, you guys can be out there saving every person, getting them to Christ, every single person you meet, because my wrath is about to be poured out. That's how they lived back then, by the way. So it keeps going, though, to give us some more information. In verse 4, there are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the earth and God. This is further identifying the two witnesses. Um, In Zechariah, chapter 4, it states this, Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What are these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered and said to me, Knowest thou not what this be? And I said, No, my lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This is a direct reference to the Mount, the Transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration. It's a direct reference. Who appeared there? Who appeared in the Transfiguration? Anybody know? Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses. Okay. So, I find it kind of funny that Revelation 11, chapter 4... Quotes directly, it says, these two witnesses, these are the two olive trees and two candlesticks standing before God on the earth. He's directly referring to wow. the Mount of Transfiguration. Never, never heard that. Isn't that amazing? And it says, these are them. Hmm. There's even more information about them to tell us who they are. It goes on, and if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. That's pretty harsh. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't say, well, he's got to pass away, he's got to die. It says, no, he must die that way. That's pretty harsh stuff. Harm in the Greek here, in the context, is doing something to them which is not deserved or wrong. So like beating them up even though they didn't deserve it. That would be what that word kind of means. So what it's saying is if any man does something to them that they do not deserve, there's only one outcome for them. What is it? They must die by fire. They don't have no other option. They have to be killed by fire. Fire proceedeth out of their mouth. Many try to spiritualize this line and or symbolize this statement. Like, how can fire come out of their mouth? You know, that's got to be a symbol. They hold that fire, it can't be literal. It's got to be something else. However, it says, if any man hurt them, he must in this manner be killed, argues in the original language for literal meaning. It doesn't mean it's an imagery that fire is going to come out of their mouth. Scripture is declaring this is a literal thing. In the tradition of the Old Testament, particularly Elijah, the miraculous use of literal fire has been used by him, right? What did he do with fire? How would that have a fire in him? Anybody remember him? Did he call down some fire? What did yeah, that yeah, happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that? What's yeah, that? Wasn't, wasn't that where, the, where he had the uh, the... I don't know, but the other people said they could do it, and he said yes. he could do it, and then he yes. said he put water on it, and put more water yes. on it. The prophets of all. Yes. He went up there and he challenged them. He built yes. this, they had this big temple, and he's like, you know what? You go up there and you pray to your God, and here's the thing, and when he lights it on fire, we'll know your God is real. And then they did their thing. Matter of fact, I love it. And Elijah's like a funny guy. Because he goes up to him, he's like, Oh, it's okay, he must be sleeping. Won't you wake him up? Okay. I know. So it goes through that. Well, then after that's all done, like she said, he goes up there. But to make it even more impressive, he goes, you know what? This big fire pile here, it's not on fire yet. This pile of wood, this is, let's just dump some water on it. So they dumped buckets and buckets and the idea was that it filled the trough around it with water. And Elijah called down fire from heaven and it licked up the water and ignited it. So, is it impossible to think that Elijah could not call fire from heaven again to destroy those where Scripture says they must be killed in this manner? Why would I symbolize that when Scripture's already proven that fire is literal? So that's what it's talking about here a literal fire. This also indicates. Um, let's talk go a little bit farther here. The word here devoureth in that Scripture indicates complete destruction. Is that not what fire does? I mean, fire doesn't leave much behind, does it, when it goes through something? I mean, if, if you've ever seen a house that's been engulfed in flames, you can't move back into it. It pretty much destroys everything. If a lot of farmers around here like to, I don't know if they do it any much anymore, we used to burn off the fields, right? Why did they do that? Because they wanted to kill off everything in the field so new life could grow back. So fire kind of devours everything. Look at the next verse now. Talking about the two witnesses. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Okay, they can shut the rain up. Who shut rain up recently back in the Bible? Elijah, right? He told them, it ain't going to rain for how long? How long? Seven years. It's kind of interesting. The tribulation period is seven years long. Hmm, we'll get to that later. So Elijah called to stop rain. Here it tells him that these two witnesses will have the power to shut the heavens up for rain. But it goes on even farther. And it says that they have power over water to turn them to blood. Who did this? Moses! Moses. And also to smite the earth with all plagues. Who, who lets the plagues out? Here's the interesting part. The first time this happened, God dictated the plagues and ordered them correctly? Correct back then, right? What does it say here? He gives them power to inflict plagues as often as they will. So this time, he has given them authority without them seeking him to smite the earth with any plague they so choose. That's a powerful trust. That also indicates the amount of trust that God has in those two witnesses. Think about it. How much trust would God have in you if he had to look at you and say, you know what? I'm giving you the power to unleash plagues on the earth. You don't even gotta come talk to me. Just do it. How would you like somebody right now in this room to have that power? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? I mean, not even me. I think You don't even want me to have it. I might wake up with a bad day. All right? So that shows the amount of trust that he has in these two witnesses. To smite the earth with plagues as often as they will. Phew. That much power, if it wasn't full trust, that much power could be used for evil. Absolutely. That much power could be used for evil. 11.7. Now we're going to talk some more about them. And when they have finished their testimony... The beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit, we talked about him last week, shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Wow. So the beast is going to come up out of the pit, he's going to make war with them, and he's going to kill them. All right, last time I checked, if there's two people, I don't need to make war with them, right? Because war indicates what? More than one person involved in this. Okay? The word warrior literally is a military term meaning to attack from all sides. So this is an indication that the beast from the bottomless pit knows he cannot defeat them. So he makes war against them. And he kills them. The beast out of the bottomless pit, we know who that is. That identifies who the actual enemy of the witnesses are. It's not the people. It's It's this beast. But notice the word beast here in the Greek is "tharion," And the word does not mean the animal, but it means man or kingdom. So we can take this to mean the world system if we wanted to. It would be correct to say the, the at this point in time, the world system is pretty corrupt. They're following the Antichrist. So we can say that here. When we get to chapter 12 and 13, we'll discuss all that in a lot of detail. But make war against them is the agenda of the beast. Has not that been his agenda from the beginning? What is why why is he always why is the church always attacked? Why does he always make war against the body of Christ? Because he hates anything that God loves. That's right. I love that he says make war, because this clearly indicates in Scripture that the two witnesses, remember, they're not God. They're just someone sent by God. But yet, the beast even acknowledges he doesn't have the power to defeat them. He can't defeat them. So he's got to use the world's systems to defeat them. Shall overcome and kill them. This is the result of their three and a half year desire of the beast. While they're here, while they're here at that point, that mid-trip going on, do you think that every avenue of the beast is going to be trying to stop them because everything is going the way he wants it? They'll be hated. Hated like we can't even imagine hatred. All right. However, the language indicates that this, this kill, to kill them, it indicates that the only reason they were able to kill them was they were granted authority or permission to do it. Right. Time so what the language is saying is, the beast is going to kill them, but only because God granted them the authority to kill them. Now we're like, well that's kind of evil. Why would he do that? That's where we can look at our... We have a a very finite view of everything. We would see that and be like, well, that's God's prophets, and now he just allowed them to be killed. Why would God do that? Well, because we can't see the plan. We're going to see it here. Why God allowed them to die. It goes further. Let's talk about them being dead. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. Which, is, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. This tells us where it's going to happen. Where's it going to happen? Right where the Christ was crucified. In the same spot. They're going to they're kill the witnesses. Dead bodies shall lie in the streets. I want you guys to know that indicates the level of contempt that the world will have for anyone who probably believes in Christ at that because I'm going to tell you this right now. Even today, a stranger laying dead, we're not going to go, well, just leave layer and he rots. There's not a person out there that will do that. We, well, there might be some psychos out there that will do it, but the average person is going to call someone and say, hey, there's a dead body on the street. You, know, you might want to come get him. At this point in Scripture, nobody cares. They have so much contempt for these two witnesses, they just let them rot the street. Well, that's what they're hoping for. This speaks of the utter depravity that the human state has gotten to at this point. And when we get into the next chapters, it's going to become very evident. But it also says that the lie in the streets of the great city, of course, this could be none other than Jerusalem, for many reasons. The word spiritually there is the word pneumococcus, and it's the same word as used in 1 Corinthians. John is saying spiritual perception is necessary to understand the great city. Meaning, the great city is a literal city, but it's not great by size, is what it's saying. When we say a great, that's a great city, we, we, we tend to mean large in size. Here, great city does not mean it's large in size, it's great for a reason different than normal, is what he's saying. So it's clearly defining Jerusalem. Now notice it says Sodom in there too. This is the first clue why it is a great city. Sodom was what? What happened to Sodom? Yeah, it was destroyed by God, right? Uh, what was, why was it destroyed by God? Do you remember? Okay. It's particularly any kind of sins. What's that? Yeah, homosexuality, immorality. It's pretty, pretty bad. What, how, did, how did God destroy that city? Oh, interesting. Okay. Sodom, throughout Scripture, became the word used for what? Wickedness. Every time it was mentioned, it means wickedness. Okay? It is always spoken in Scripture as a destroyed city after that point. It's never talked about a rebuilt city, because it never was. Alright? Egypt. Here's your second clue to why this first city is the great city. Egypt is not a city, but it was a state. It wasn't a city. They weren't traveling to the city of Egypt. Right? Egypt was a state, a nation, a a huge, it wasn't just like I was traveling to Greenville, I'd be traveling to Pennsylvania. So it was a state, alright? But also, it is what the state represents here, that's John's point. What does scripture identify Egypt as? Slavery, idolatry, I mean we can go on the list on and on. But interestingly, both of those cities were destroyed by God. Both of them. So when he says the great city, he has to be referring to Jerusalem. Because it can't be Egypt, it can't be Sodom, which were two of the great cities that were mentioned in Scripture. But the final clue is where also our Lord was crucified. That clearly indicates that this is Jerusalem. So our two witnesses now have came in at mid-trib. They are coming in because all peace is removed from the earth. It is horrible right now. The desolation has happened. The two witnesses come in. They're going to preach for three and a half years telling people to come to Christ because of what's about to happen. And at the end of that three and a half years, at the same place that our Savior was crucified, they will be killed. Boy, if that's not some imagery, that's, I don't know what it is. Because something happens to these two witnesses that only ever happened to somebody else. To one person. It goes on. But listen to how much they love them being dead. And they that dwell upon the earth rejoiced over them. And make merry and shall send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. They torment. I love that. It says they tormented them. I tor- we were tormenting them because I was telling you that you need Jesus. So the world, boy, that sounds kind of familiar today. I think we're seeing the beginning of that. Because our, what we call hate groups. We spew hate. We're tormenting the world with our beliefs. We're just seeing a snippet of what's going to happen here. So, they that dwell upon the earth indicates this is a universal celebration. It's not like just a couple people down the block. That means everybody on the known earth at this point, when they see these two people dead, are going to celebrate. It's like a national party. This same reference is used nine times in Revelation where it says, they that dwell upon the earth. It's used nine times in the book of Revelation and it always, always, always is a reference to wicked people. It shall rejoice over them and make merry. That that means they had genuine happiness over the death of these people. Okay. Let's be honest with ourselves. We might not like somebody... But are we going to be genuinely happy when they die? No, right? We still have remorse, sorrow. We have some kind of compassion going on. They are genuinely happy, and that's given evidence by they're going to give some gifts. They're partying like it's a birthday. Two's they're dead. Let's pass on some gifts. Woohoo! This gives you an idea of the mindset of humanity at this point. They're more excited about them dying than they are anything else. It's like like they're having a New Year's Eve celebration. Phew. Tormented them that directly dwell on the earth. Like I said, i we get a glimpse of that. Verse 11. Here's why it's significant where they would be killed. Verse 11. After three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into him. And they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them, which saw. The spirit of life from God entered them. There's only one other time that happened. When did that happen? When did somebody else come back to life? Resurrected. Jesus, right? He was the only one who was resurrected. Lazarus was an example of resurrection, yes. But Christ is the only one who came back to life. So, these two witnesses, I want you to visualize this. Because it's, it's obviously national. They can see everything going on right now, right? It's worldwide. They're watching these two guys, and they're, first off, they're waiting for them to rock. They're sending off gifts. They're partying. They're probably drinking it up and having a great time as the days of Noah. And they're all watching this, and all of a sudden, these two guys stand up. Can you imagine that? I mean, and the world, it says... Everyone will see this happen. They're gonna stand up after three and a half days. Three and a half. Somebody else rose three and a half days later, too, didn't they? Three days later, didn't Christ rise? Wasn't three and a half, right? Why are they three and a half? Oh, somebody pointed it out. Okay, we'll get into that later, but you knew. But they rise three and a half days later. They stand up in the streets. Everybody sees it. I think that has to be like the, that would be just the greatest. I mean, I can't even imagine that. But we're going to get to see it. Remember, the church is up there. We're like in this little ring. We're, like we're like at a football game. We're all sitting in the stands in heaven right now watching all this go on. And we're going to be like cheer, Like, woo! You know, when they stand back up again. It's going to be like the end of the game. So the world, who was just partying and celebrating over killing them, literally thought they killed them. And they were dead. God breathes life back into these two witnesses and they stand up for everybody to see. God gave Adam breath for the first time, right? The two prophets will receive it a second time, which is amazing. This is a beautiful picture of the resurrection of the dead that awaits all those in the grave and God will breathe life back into them and they will walk out of groups. Alright, verse 12. Am I good for time? Verse 12. I love this. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. They heard a great voice. That indicates that the entire world heard the voice. And the reason I'm highlighting all this is because the next few chapters are going to blow your mind if, if the entire world just witnessed two people get up from the dead and then they hear a voice that says come up here then why in the world are the next few chapters are they even acting like that? Because they're going to even become harder and completely deny him. So he tells them to come up here. Come up hither is the exact command given to John in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 when he told John up hither. So that was where he's calling him home. So that's another example that Christ indicates the witnesses are taken to heaven in bodily form, not a spiritual. When he called John in the first chapter, verse, chapter four, verse one, when he told John to come up hither. We like to believe that John was dreaming, right? Went up to heaven in a vision. This language indicates no. John was literally taken from the Isle of Patmos when he said, come up hither. Just as he called the witnesses, John was called. And John literally, physically, in body, went there. Just like the two witnesses. It's not a spiritual experience. It's a physical. Um, And and the reason I bring that up is because a lot of times we like to read Revelation, and we think it's really cool, and we like it, and it's got some good stuff in it, but sometimes we don't think it's actually real. You ever think about that? Sometimes we like to spiritualize it. We think, well, yeah, they did these, John saw these things, but we like to depower it sometimes by thinking it was visions or dreams that he was given. And I love to indicate that, no, he was, God physically called him and brought him to heaven. So that indicates heaven is what? A very real place. Right? Right? It's not, and I promise you, heaven is not us sitting on clouds playing harps. We're going to get into that later in Scripture here because heaven is actually described to us. But a lot of us only remember the golden streets. Right. And I've heard people tell me, when I get to heaven, what am I going to do? I'm just going to worship 24 hours a day? Right. I'm just going to be on my face, worshiping God 24 hours a day? I'll be like, no, just, we'll talk about it. But I will tell you this, we'll be living in heaven. How many people think heaven is... What do you think? That's one opinion. We'll actually talk about it. Nobody's wrong or right. What do you think? No, it's supposed to be in you. Okay. So... Well, heaven isn't it? He's gonna have a new earth, so it's gonna be similar as far as life. You know, we still have a life. We still serve. We still okay. worship. But okay. it's not gonna be in this messy okay. planet. I like that. So, heaven right now is in us. Kingdom of God lives within us. It's also indicated that there is a place beyond that we cannot see an area that we call, let's call it Abraham's bosom, if you so choose when it opened up and you could see it okay, so there's an area there but Revelation indicates that there's going to be a third way that heaven is going to play into us and somebody said it earlier when they said there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and we'll talk about that, the reason I bring that up is because no, we're not going to be in heaven just on our faces worshiping 24 hours a day be like, oh like little robots, oh Yes, we are going to worship constantly the Lord and be grateful because everything will be revealed to us. But we have purpose. We have things that yes. are going to happen. Yes. yes. So we'll talk about that. So the two witnesses, over to talk about this? They ascended up to heaven in a cloud, indicates the witnesses were taken in bodily form, and their enemies beheld them. It's interesting that he ends with that. This, From this point on in the book of Revelation, That identifies every single person left on this earth. Enemies of God. So when these two witnesses finish their three and a half year point and they go to heaven, the rest of the people are enemies of God. Not one left. Not one left. And it's kind of interesting as we get to that, then we're going to see that seventh trumpet. And at that point, let's ask some questions before we go any further or we'll wrap up tonight. How many think, where does everybody think the Battle of Armageddon is in here? We've all heard the Battle of Armageddon, right? You know, we've seen it on TV, we've seen it Hollywoodized. You know, Battle of Armageddon. Well, let me ask it this way. Is it a physical battle or is it a spiritual battle? Okay, somebody says both. What else? Well, no problem, we're right here. We're going to talk about it. Do you think it's strictly spiritual? I don't know. Do you think it's strictly spiritual? Do you have any idea where it is? What does Hollywood say when we watch the movies about the Battle of Armageddon? It's the end, right? Hollywood always makes the Battle of Armageddon the end. What if I told you the Battle of Armageddon happens about here and yet there is another battle that will take place at the end? Has anybody ever told you that? I won't tell you. I you know the Bible tell you. Because Armageddon has been so Hollywooded that we have our own preconceived idea of what it actually is. Daniel's chapters, Daniel's 70th week describes Ben Tripp, but there's also a prophecy in the book of Daniel that describes the battle of Armageddon to a T. We covered it when we did group, and I will cover it with everyone. Too. Next week, we'll no, cover it. To oh no no! Feet? We're going to cover it in word by word together. <laughs> word by word. Oh my! Goodness. Because let's ask one more question to close on tonight. When Christ returns for how many's heard of the millennial reign? That thousand year period, millennial reign. Okay, and that's when Christ physically puts his feet back on the earth, and he rules and reigns with his people for a thousand years before Satan is finally done with it. All right. How many because of Hollywood, believe the millennial reign is full of nothing but peace? Okay, that is, you're, not, you're not wrong, there's lots of people who believe that. But if it's filled with peace, then how come in the middle of the millennial reign, man decides to turn against God and wants to attack him? Yeah, the devil's still here. It's not very peaceful. And the devil's still here, he's not bound. He's bound temporarily, but he still has influence yeah. over the earth. And I'm glad we're going to talk about that too. Because one of the misconceptions we have is the millennial reign, when Christ is here for that thousand years, will be perfect. Here, it will be perfect rule, let's say that. It will be perfectly ruled, but it will not be yet devoid of violence. There will still be violence during that period. But those of us in will be with them during that millennial reign. Yes. We are with them at that point, And we're going to cover that. But it is, it is so amazing when we get into these next chapters on your timeline to watch God's plan unfold and how it unfolds. Why I say it's amazing is because everything we've talked about so far, all the way back here before the rapture of the church, God has shown us over and over and over. Let's talk about times now that you have a sheep. In prophecy back here, did they prophet, do we know the exact date that Christ would have been crucified? Yes. I'll show you that in prophecy. We know it down to the exact pretty much minute that Christ will be crucified on the cross. Alright. Also, do we know in prophecy when he was going to be born? All right. We know exactly when he was going to be born. Okay? Do we know in prophecy when the tribulation period is going to happen? We do. We know it's going to happen after the church is raptured. We know that. And do we know when the millennial period will happen? Yes, we know it's going to happen after Christ returns physically to earth. So if Scripture's given us all of these dates and all of these times and everything we can know, then why don't we, why do we have this idea that we can't know the rapture? Not today. But why can't we know that we're in the season? See, we've heard that word, no man will know the day or the hour, and it's become cliche. And it's become, no man, we can never know when Christ is coming. We can never know. That's false. We cannot pick a date. And if anybody ever picks a date to you, run. Because nobody can pick a date. That's that's wrong. What Christ is showing us with this is we can absolutely know when that fig tree that that was dead is budding that means is we will know when we are in the season of the new moon of the feast of trumpet we know when we're in the season we are watching for it to appear all of this is indicating to us that we, remember way back when I said were we ever commanded in scripture to watch for the antichrist are we told to sit around and wait and look for the antichrist no, what are we told to watch for the return, the rapture, we're told everything in scripture points us to that this is what you are watching for this is what we as Christians are looking for so that is another indication the church will not be part of the tribulational period the tribulational period is for one purpose and one purpose only and and I say this and I don't mean it in a derogatory way, it is for the Jewish people that's who it's for that's why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Because the only way that they are going to turn to God is, just like before, what did they have to do? They had to go struggle around in the wilderness for 40 years. So again, this is God, and this is why I like to talk about that replacement theory. Absolutely, are, the church is not replace the Jews. They are God's people. They are God's chosen people. And God will complete what he's promised them. That's the point of the tribulation. It's not evil. It's not God trying to pour evil on the earth. It's God trying to save his people. That's why I said in the beginning, the book of Revelation is not a book of destruction. It's a book of love. He is pouring his love out in the only way a father knows how to pour their love out when their children have gone astray. You're a father, right? There's many fathers in this room. When your child has gone astray, you don't go... We might, at times, have to give them a spanking, right? We might have to punish them. We might have to discipline them. Why? Because even though it looks evil now, that discipline is what's going to save the life. That's the word of Revelation. That's the word of saying, it hurts me more than it hurts you. Some. Yes. Anybody got your any questions tonight? That's a lot of stuff I threw out there tonight. There's a lot in there. And, and we'll be talking a lot about it because the next chapters talk a lot about this and we'll be filling some stuff in. Next week, there'll be more up here. But anybody got any questions tonight on anything that you ever want to ask? I don't care what the question is. When Paul was taken into the is that the same uh, language that was... Talking? Yes, that is the same idea of language, yeah. So was Paul taken in the same place as John? Paul, yeah, remember, Paul was taken twice. Yes, Paul actually physically was trans- taken to heaven twice. The same exact language. And that's the same language when it talked about when he went from one city to the other. When I was talking about Philip, it was the same kind of language, meaning that it was a physical movement. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. God be like, I need you to talk to somebody in, in Australia. when you're in Australia. You Any question, Mary? Yeah. Um, I was wondering, you were talking when um, Elijah, was, whatever, but you said that, But Lazarus was different. Why was Brad Lazarus different? Okay. Good question. It is a very good question. Lazarus was an example of the rapture also, but it was also an example of those coming, the the saints who were in the grave. That was a preview of that happening to them. It wasn't the same as giving breath back into Lazarus. Lazarus was—he not... He didn't breathe into him. What did he do to raise him out of the grave? He just—what we just learned about when it says when he called them, come forth. So what was an example of his calling them out of the grave? Well, it wasn't a pretty in context. Wasn't the purpose to not only demonstrate his power, yes, and ability, but for the family and stuff like it was. And he says, body. remember, he makes an indication saying that he is not dead. He is just what? Sleeping. Okay, the idea of him referencing sleeping. What does it say to the saints who are in the grave? What are they doing? Sleeping. They're sleeping in who the grave. Saints that are in the grave, I thought we were all in heaven. <coughs> There's what we're going to talk about. Yes, they're in heaven. Their physical bodies are not in heaven. But I thought we don't need our bodies. We don't. We receive our glorified bodies when. That's something we do I'm glad we brought that up. When we die right now and we go to heaven, do we have our glorified body? Ah. No. No. When do we get our glorified body? Christ returns because when the rapture happens we still don't have a glorified body yet. So it'll be kind of exciting then because whatever comes out of that grave surely won't win in. That's exactly right and what comes out of that grave will be the perfect way God had intended it to be.